all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman-Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. Building a new subscription model in a large, successful company is hard enough. But when your company's core competency is manufacturing and the subscription involves content and software, you have to do more than build the new business model. You have to change the way the organization thinks about product management. With experience both at PlayStation and at Ford, today's guest, Ross McGregor, will shed light on how to build a service orientation across a product team, something critically necessary if you're going to build a forever transaction with your customers. In this conversation, he talks about how to put together the business case that merits a strategic bet on subscriptions, how to build support across the organization from the beginning, and when it's time to scale the experiment. Ross, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little about your background, your subscription autobiography. How did you develop your subscription expertise? You know, I got into subscription more accident rather design, maybe the better part of 15 years ago now at PlayStation, we're moving into the subscription space. I was formerly of the team that had created the service. I was starting to develop and think about the service, certainly. And they asked me if I'd be interested and kind of interested in running it. So I was there from kind of day zero, really, or certainly day one. And the rest of it, blood, sweat, and tears, really, you know, it kind of went through when subscription was still nascent as a business model and even as a concept. This was back in maybe 2010. So I, I had many, many different roles throughout kind of decade plus at PlayStation across kind of various different subscription components from product side to business management and everything in between. So cut my teeth and yeah, certainly learned a ton along the way. Most recently, I was at Ford Motor Company. There is, you know, the whole automotive industry, which is well publicized, is trying to move into this services space. And it reminds me a lot of those early days, really, at PlayStation, whereby, you know, folk are trying to work out what the customers really want in this space, how is it going to work? And then, of course, it's infinitely more complicated, I think, when you try and combine kind of software and services on top of vehicles, which have you know, the clock speed, as we used to say, or the planning cycles are so, so different. So it's a new and very exciting space. And I think is something that potentially has the opportunity to change human behavior over the next kind of 10 years or so as these services are realized. Wow. Yeah. So you've been in some very large, well-established companies with strong businesses at the moment when they are introducing subscriptions. What kind of business case should a company have before they make a strategic bet on subscriptions? Yeah, you know, I think like all things, starting with why is probably the most important first step. You know, what are you trying to do in the first place? What do you expect to change by taking that action? I know, especially nowadays, because the subscription model over the last, and certainly in my time, has become so prominent. And there's been a lot of high profile success stories that you hear, well, comes with high margin and recurring revenue. That's great. How do we get involved? 
But the truth is, I think the road is long and it's full of peril. So you have to be prepared for the journey. And, you know, I think, so clear purpose is front and center. Why are you doing this? What's our purpose? But the second thing is, can we build the right value proposition? Can we deliver something to customers that they will truly love? And then can you scale that to the extent that you as the company can benefit from all the good stuff that maybe a subscription model has to offer? So can you deliver to customers something meaningful with ongoing value? And that's what I've always described. If you're a described service, I describe the subscription as the model that sits with that. It's the provision of value to the customer over time. That's the fundamental difference. But if you can do that and you can create meaningful value that meets an unmet need for that customer, you hit that kind of business sweet spot where you benefit from recurring and predictable revenue, but you also have set yourself up for an ongoing customer relationship that you can build and that builds stability in your business. So yeah, I mean, I think you start there, but then there's other things on the back end you need to consider. There's infrastructures, there's tools and capabilities. In my experience, a recurring business is very different to a traditional sales business. So there's your financial systems, there's an accounting treatment that is different to how you might typically account for sales. So you've got to, have you got the infrastructure in place to make those shifts? Then there's your analytics capabilities. A subscription service, I've said for many years, it never sleeps. It doesn't take any time off. Your customers are constantly, they're acting in the ways they're acting. Are they thinking about renewing? Are they changing their plans? Are they moving up and down? So you've got to be able to track behavior organically and react accordingly. So how are you going to look at the data you have, analyze the insights, leverage them or manipulate those to grow your business? That's very different, I think, from maybe more of a traditional sales process. Other your metrics, maybe traditionally you've got metrics that output very focused sales KPIs, and you might move more to a lifetime value or LTV model if you're you know, kind of really focused down on subscription. And that in turn has an impact on how you communicate to customers. So services marketing overall, I think once you get into that relationship, there's different lifestyles, sorry, life cycle stages customers will have. So you're triggering one-to-one messages based on an action a customer will take rather than maybe a more traditional marketing approach might be one-to-many with your communications. And maybe last but not least, your product planning or development cycles, again, they're fluid. They're very behavior-based. So you're going to react to what customers are doing. And then you might want to evolve this because, again, a service needs to provide that customer value over time. So if their wants and needs are evolving, you need to be able to react to that. And then, although I said that was the last point, maybe one more that jumps out, I think there's also a bit of a mindset change here and you need to be clear about the timeline. The typically subscriptions come with a lower price point. So the revenue bump or the gratification isn't immediate. And if you make a decision in the near term, there can be you know ripple effects further down the line to that. So you need to be very, very clear that you're creating long-term value for customers. And this isn't about a short-term bump. I think they're the main things in my experience, certainly. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, know your why, which I agree with you is the most important thing to know why you're getting into subscriptions. And it shouldn't be just to enjoy some higher margin revenue. You should have a, like you said, a product that delights the customers on an ongoing basis, right? Because this is value over time. And that you should be able to see that this is a scalable business. And then, you know, you went through all of the changes that you can expect. So I think, you know, another piece of that is that if you're going into subscriptions as an organization, you shouldn't just think of it as a product you're introducing, but as a 
I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is it's a new business with different roles and different metrics almost across the board. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I don't think it is black becomes white or vice versa, but I think there are a lot of fundamental changes that you need to be prepared for across the board. And it's going to take a lot of hard work throughout any organization to enable that. And it tends to start with a small team with a vision that's very clear on that purpose and then working out what that next step is. But typically it's yeah cross-functional effort and requires much patience. So how do you know, you know, you've been at two places at least now that have been at that first point. How do you know whether the company understands <laughs> what they're getting into? And maybe if you can share, you know, an example from either of those organizations or, you know, somewhere else of what gives you confidence that you see like, oh, okay, I'm going to be able to be successful in this environment. Yeah. I mean, I think in my experience, it depends. I don't know if you ever know if you're going to be successful. Like there's a moment where it's like, okay, here we go. But there are frameworks I think you can apply that will help you de-risk some of those decision-making when it's all new. So if I start with that kind of more measured approach, rather than saying, I don't know, we're, we're just going to jump in you know, to the deep end and see what happens. I think in my experience, and we did a lot of this if I talk about PlayStation here for a moment, when we launched the latest iteration of PlayStation Plus, which is the t- tiered service, we knew you know game subscriptions were rapidly changing within the industry. You can see that new entrants coming in and, and traditional entrants evolving their offering. So we spent a lot, a lot of time, and I would advise anyone to do this, You know, do the work early on, scenario plan, really push on the options that you have in front of you, get alignment with your stakeholders on your goals, Again, why are you doing this in the first place? Why are you making this change? What are you trying to achieve with what you're doing? Then I think the most important piece is getting some definition of what a successful outcome might look like. So not necessarily this is our perfect outcome, but if we achieve this, we recognize there's some success. And that objectively allows you to measure okay, we did this, now what do we do next? So to your point, are you doubling down? Are you going for this or not? But a framework I learned a while back now that I'd like to apply for these is the race framework. So at the point at which your experiment concludes, do you you look at your results and do you are, do you redirect, do you reassess the, you know, your resource? Do you accelerate a pile more into that? Do you continue at current pace and see what happens? Or do you recognize that this didn't go as planned, so e, do you exit? And I think that with a framework like that, it really helps manage a disruption process, which is typical of companies that are trying to evolve from sales into subscription, because it gives you an objectivity around through which you can measure your success. And it allows you as the disruptor to be quite transparent in what it is you're trying to achieve along the way. You've got these milestones. And the transparency will also help you build trust that when the difficult times occur, you're able to lay it all down and say, hey, we were doing this together. We agreed this is what success looked like. How close did we get there or did we fall short? Yeah, I really like what you're saying about doing a lot of the work up front and the scenario planning and also having some agreement before you jump in on, you know, what are the criteria going to be to accelerate? You know, what are the criteria going to be to just continue steady state? Under what circumstances do you adjust and reassess? And, and under what circumstances do you exit? 
I've actually seen both sides. I've seen organizations do an experiment that goes pretty well. And the leadership or the board or the owners, whoever that might be, that's above the person doing all the work says, that's not good enough. Let's shut it down. And I've seen them say, you know, let it all ride. (laughs) This is the future of the company. And the, the person running it is like, wait, but this was such a narrow experiment. And, you know, this was with our friendly audience and, you know, all these things. So I think you're right that it is important to have some agreement on back to your first point about what the purpose is. Because I think for some organizations, subscription is a way, I mean, you know, Electronic Arts is a good example of this. And we had Mike on the show a, a few episodes ago. One of the things that he talked about, it was about building ongoing relationships, direct ongoing relationships, as opposed to, you know, huge new source of revenue. Now, if, if his team, if his leadership had turned the tables and said, oh, actually, it's not about, it's not about retention, it's about revenue or it's about profitability, you know, that would have made success difficult, right? Because, you know, you're optimizing for a particular metric. And I think the other thing that happens a lot is that when you ask execs, you know, which metric are we going for? Is it about engagement? Is it about revenue? Is it about bringing in a certain new audience or deepening trust with a certain audience or, you know, whatever it is, you know, most executives will say it's all of the above. Right. Right. We wanted to do every, we wanted to generate lots of new revenue, more existing revenue, greater profitability, greater feelings of trust. And I think that's, it's certainly hard to do. And it's really hard to do when you weren't asked to do that at the beginning. Yeah, truly. And I think spending time with your executive team or your ultimate decision makers up front and making sure you're all speaking the same language, having some of those tougher conversations up front is definitely helpful. There's going to be bumps along the road. There always is. And I expect once you get a taste for success, you very quickly end up into the, the space you talked about. We want more. We want it quicker. How do we do that? But again, at every stage, from my experience, certainly, I've lived throughout where it certainly felt like disruption. It wasn't a pure play additive business to where we started. So you had to be very cognizant of that and make sure that, I'd say, trust, really gaining the trust of your stakeholders, because in some instances, what you were doing might have seemed almost counterproductive to the core business. So being upfront about that and proving that, hey, I'm a straight shooter and I have no interest in blowing this up. This is what we're trying to achieve. Are you bought into this? Is very, very helpful. And if there was one thing I would like to impart on anyone who's going down that journey, it would be that do the work up front, gain the trust, be authentic in what it is you're trying to do and be transparent. And then through that, good things will come. Yeah. And I think one of the challenges you're bringing up, which I think is unique to organizations that are already successful, like Ford, like PlayStation, where you already have a good business, the owners of those traditional businesses might see you as a threat. You're certainly a distraction. You know, this new subscription business, it's disruptive. But you may be making suggestions that actually are going to take revenue out of their line and into your line or take it out of their line and make it go up in smoke and disappear, right? Correct. You know, there is a lot of give and take, especially in the early days of, you know, so early on, I worked with Netflix and they were quite small. And we really worried that, you know, Blockbuster could do, since they had physical locations, they could do a hybrid program. They could, you know, ship, but also have them at the store. Like we imagined what we would do if we had that kind of footprint. But the truth was that the retailers, you know, the the store managers weren't set up for that. 
that made them, you know, they were, they'd be distracted. They, you know, all these things, they weren't going to do it. Right. Or the idea that Walmart, you know, when they were in the subscription video DVD business, we had this vision, they were going to give it away as a loss leader to get people into the store. Right. Which they could do, but that wasn't how they were set up. They were set up as their own little independent, you know, prove your case before we give you any of the keys to the kingdom. So I'm curious, can you share some of the considerations, either PlayStation or for, you know, an example of the kinds of considerations and trade-offs that people were talking about or that you were thinking about? Well, I think the big one that actually transcends both Ford and PlayStation is the, again, if I talk about these successful businesses, they're successful in quote unquote hardware in some form or another has been the traditional model, but it's also been almost a B2B to C business whereby Traditionally, in the games business, you sell them to retail and customers would buy your, uh, buy your game. In the automotive industry, you sell to a dealer and then you know, your customer will buy the, the vehicle off the lot. So I think when you move into this kind of subscription space, it is seeking more of a direct relationship because to be a successful service, i.e., again, the provision of value over time, you're going to have to know your customer. And the classic, you know, a customer might say, show me you know me and you've got to get You've got to know them intricately and you've got to know the cohorts of different customers and where they're at in their life stage and in, within the service for you to effectively serve them. So the challenge there is starting to break up those relationships that you've held for years in a certain successful medium and rebuild them in this customers at the center. And at no time at PlayStation was it ever declared we don't want to work with retail. And Ford have very publicly stated that dealers are critically important to their future. So you've got to work out ways to bring everybody along. And you know, while it's far easier said than done, I think you know, shared sense of purpose is critical. And that's why, I mean, you share with your stakeholders, wherever they may be, tell them what you're trying to do, get them on board earlier. And I think importantly, really listen to what they have to say about this. Like I say, I'm someone who really intently likes to listen to what people saying to me often enough they have a counter objective and outside in perspective and i like to understand why it can make your job much much harder honestly but i believe if you listen and you objectively you know kick the tires together it moves from my thing to our thing and you take their input and you build that shared sense of purpose and in my experience there's nothing more kind of powerful in business than shared sense of purpose. If you have that together, you can take on the world. And when inevitably problems occur, you're right there together, you know, riding shotgun and you'll go and tackle it head on. And again, you can objectively move to solve some of those problems together. When you say together, is it you and your colleagues, your fellow employees, or is it also the partners? I know with, you know, many of our guests who've moved, as you said, from not just from transactional to subscription, but also from indirect to direct, that there's a big fear that the distributor, whether that's, you know, in Ford's case, dealers, or whether that's retailers, that they're going to be concerned and that they might pull away or they might change their behavior out of fear of what you're doing. So are you recommending talking to, let's say, the channel manager at your own company or actually getting out there and going to a dealer meeting or a retailer conference and talking about, you know, this is what we're trying to do. We're working together to serve this customer. So the latter, I feel like, again, it depends where you're at. 
and what level of maturity. But I think the best way, although it's maybe the hardest, steepest hill, is talk to everybody first. By stakeholders, I mean your ecosystem, your partners, yes, your team. But yeah, in your broader sense, I think, but again, in my experience, when either we haven't done that early enough or we haven't listened to what our partners are saying, sometimes you only land, you know, part of the way there and you're building a debt that probably needs to be collected at some point anyway. You know, I think if you've particularly, if you've been successful, there's a lot of people that have contributed in different roles and functions to that success. So just because you're going, hey, we're going to do this service model now and subscriptions and we're no longer in sales. One, I don't think that traditional business dies overnight, you know, even if it's sunsetting slowly. I think there's a lot in there. And any service you build should build from the strengths already established in that existing business. If you're trying to do something net new, I would question why as an organization you're doing it this way when you've had success in another way formally. Now, it's different if you're a startup and this is the first time. And I think a lot of what I've lived through apply there. But as you highlight, in my experience, I've been at large companies that have been very successful worldwide brands in doing what they do and then in the journey towards or have have already completed the first steps in that journey to the transition towards a service model so yeah again listening and really taking on board what you know your ecosystem (laughs) at the broader sense is telling you i think is really important it is hard to do that because there is a lot of fear there's emotional concern And then there's also, you know, skills, technical skills, experience with different kinds of models. Both of these companies are hardware companies or grew up as hardware companies, very different cadence from a service business. I know when you were at PlayStation, you talked a lot about having a service first mindset. That was sort of, you know, one of your big battle cries. What did that mean at a place like PlayStation? And what does that mean for you when you think about subscription? Yeah, I mean, I still talk about that. And again, I think it applies to most. I think it was kind my time at PlayStation because we had a lot of success at a PlayStation Plus, but, you know, years into the journey, you know, and I can be fact-checked on this. I believe it's still the biggest game subscription in the world by way of subscribers. So it ballooned into this large business and we had those early stages of success. So then you start to question, well, how do we nurture this business further? What do we take what we've learned? which is we're in the retention business now. It's not all, we always were in the sales business, but now we have to think about how do we engage with our customers, communicate with our customers so much that they stay and they stay in the long term. So it starts to shift. And some of this might sound very obvious to the audience, but maybe it's still worth saying, I think. Almost all your decisions, if you take a service-first mindset, you absolutely have to put front and center the customer value you're creating in the long term first. Because if you take that path and you prove to your customers that you're serving them well and they'll love you for it, they'll stay and you benefit for the business. If you shortcut that in any way, you run the risk of kind of destabilizing what you might have or inadvertently blocking future opportunities because you didn't you know, think it through in the long term. So long-term thinking and taking in the big picture, I think is is really important. And that's, in my mind, what that service first, observing the customer first and foremost. And I think most companies 
will proclaim that they are customer centric. But I think when you say you're service centric, you really, really are priority number one is how do we create the most value for our customers so they love us for it? And then one would hope once they engage with you, the monetization will follow. Can you give me an example of a time when you said, hey, service first, what was happening, what it would have looked like if they hadn't gone service first? Yeah, I mean, so one that jumps to mind today, again, maybe is a PlayStation example. It's easy to talk about that because this is live and in the market. But like, if you break it down to the most basic needs, you know, gamers want games. (laughs) They want to access games. They want to play games and play good games as often and as frequently as they wanted to. And if I go way back to the very, very beginning, when we launched the Instant Game Collection, which I believe was 2012, there was naturally a lot of hesitance both on the first-party platform side and through our publishing partner side that you're including games as part of this subscription, will that cannibalize our revenue potential? But you know, when we talked long and hard and we evolved that over the years, we talked about content windowing and you know the right time, the mixing genres of games and looking at how people were consuming those games and the type of games they were, and it's evolved a lot. But I think in many ways, the instant game collection changed the way game consumption is forever. Now, there's a lot of games you'll get through subscriptions. But we did that because we came back to that most basic of basic needs. If we do this, gamers, if you get it right, our customers will love us for it because we're giving them more of what they want at a more economical price. And it wasn't like they stopped playing the other games that weren't in that subscription, but you gave them more of what they loved. And therefore, they appreciated you as a result. And there was a lot of pain to walk through through that as an industry, I think. But if I look back now, I mean, you know, that's over a decade ago now. I don't know if we could ever imagine that world again now. We've evolved. And I think that's very much taking that service first mindset to say we will give customers something they will love. We will take the pain up front because we believe they will extract maximum value for it. And therefore, we will benefit in the long term. And we did. And I don't mean we. PlayStation, I mean, as an industry, I think there is now, you know, although it's still very hotly debated, there is now game subscription services all over the place that simply, I might argue, wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the instant game collection taking that first very mainstream step within PlayStation Plus. How do you establish a subscription-oriented value proposition in an organization with a rhythm around hardware? Yeah, so I've come back to a point I touched on earlier. I think you must build from your strengths. I think there are certain things that have made you successful. So what are they and how can you augment that? I mean, I think probably the first fact that you might describe is hardware businesses typically have longer R&D planning cycles, manufacturing times, there's kind of shipping distribution costs. If you move to a software services model, once you're scaled, there are, it's a lot easier to, you know, pivot, take your path and monetize. In the hardware model with all those downstream costs, if the product wasn't successful like you intended, you don't recoup those costs. So I think it's the first thing when you asked out the gates on kind of business case, it's you're transferring away into this more consistent financial or revenue line rather than kind of lumpy revenue. So there's that lens to it. But then if there's ways that you can at least again, in my experience, where you can add services that augment, you know, the core business, build on that, it becomes win-win. One, I think the customer gets a better experience because they're 
in your ecosystem. They've purchased the hardware. But if they buy into the service layer and that makes the hardware even better, opens up more opportunities for them, gets them from A to B without the friction, or just frankly helps them enjoy their the product they've invested in more so, I think then there's a way to benefit from that as the company. And that's where that business case all comes together. And yeah, it's not easy to do. I've certainly been part of some things we've tried to do that didn't work along the journey. But if you can do that, certainly early on, I think it's the best way to help scale your business because you're feeding you the company flywheel that already exists around hardware, if you will. And you are enhancing that rather than detracting away from that. Something that I've seen and I've, I've thought about quite a bit is, you know, if you really believe in a service mindset, which I know you do, right? I would imagine that the ultimate, you know, end game for a hardware company with software services is that the whole thing is a service, right? And talk about, you know, product mindset versus service mindset coming, you know, head to head for battle. I have a five-year-old Peloton in my garage, right? That doesn't have a lot of the features that they talk about on the subscription that I'm still current on. And so if I want to get the value, the full value, I have to buy new hardware. It doesn't come with my already pretty expensive subscription. Same thing is true with my, you know, with my phone. I mean, a lot of companies have sort of, you know, kind of straddled two, two different mindsets. What's your thought on that? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've seen that play out and I've certainly been in rooms where I've argued for, hey, this is clearly the future, you know, why are we holding on to the past? But I don't know, frankly, I don't know if I was right in some of those arguments as well. I think, at least for the foreseeable future, screens and input devices are probably required. So there's some form of hardware. As soon as you add that software layer, you, the complexity of, of keeping that hardware updated, as you said, like is in perpetuity, or eventually does technologists outrun it and you've got to you know, re-up on the hardware rebuy. But I think there's value there. And interestingly, with the exception, maybe kind of music and video that are kind of omnipresent, you know, I think we're seeing more and more, you mentioned One Peloton being a good example of that, more and more subscription services that combine hardware and service. And as long as we're not, you know, hanging out all day in the metaverse, we're still going to need tangible interaction points. So I, I actually think the perfect spot is having that service really enhance quickly, more quickly, or accelerate what that hardware experience could be. And enabling you to maybe personalize it or customize it more to the unique customer needs, where, again, for the reasons I discussed, hardware, R&D, planning, distribution, manufacturing, you tend to build it. It's more of a, a static kind of product where a service can evolve a little bit quicker. You can maybe have multiple tiers or packages that appeal to different customer sets, and they feel a little more like it's customized for them. And again, for people to really love you, I think they've got to feel like they have a sense of belonging to you as a business. And that requires you to deliver to them, them as an individual. They need to feel that way, even if it's to them as one of a larger cohort of customers. Yeah. One of the reasons I really wanted to get you on the show is because I think so many manufacturing companies are trying to figure out subscription and are bumping into the kinds of challenges that you've described around, you know, the nascent business being like a flea on the back of a huge dog of a business or a huge, huge successful business, the different lead cycles, you know, kind of business cycles, 
you know, the fear of cannibalization, the upfront investment that's required for this long tail revenue. This last point of, you know, what happens when you've got the latest software and the five-year-old hardware? Do you have, like, should I have to buy it or should it be part of my subscription? And I think these are, these are really hard questions that are, you know, true of the whole category, the whole hardware space. Yeah, honestly, I like it's a terrible answer, but it's it's a good one. Is the answer is it depends, right? Yeah. Um, well, I'm a consultant, of, so that yeah, is yeah. that is always yeah. the answer. Yeah. It's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah, I mean, I feel like maybe price point plays some part to that. You know, if you're buying a vehicle or you're buying a Peloton in that instance, you're buying a console in some instances. I don't know where that number is. Is it a few hundred dollars? Is it you know? Is it many thousands of dollars? Is it tens of thousands of dollars? Where if you're putting that money down, your expectation is now you're charging me on top. I expect this thing to go for time. Now, it can't be forever. Nothing lasts forever. I mean, at the end of the day, maybe 10 years out, we'll go, hey, we'll support this for as long as you want it. But at some point, customers are actually going to want to move on and up because technology has moved on and up or the proposition has evolved so much that it's no longer as relevant and, and you'll gracefully sunset what was before. So I think. The, that probably matters company by company, use case to use case. You've really got to think about that. You're right. And I've certainly argued in context that, you know, in, in a perfect world, wouldn't it be great that, hey, you're a subscriber. We got you. You know, if, as long as you're paying for this, if it's hardware required, we'll upgrade when the time is right. I'm not sure. I mean, there's the economical side to that, too. And then there's a scalability side to that as well. Like a lot of digital services. As soon as you're kind of shipping hardware to customers, again, you're right back. Are you doing that through retailers? Are you got customers' address? Are you shipping it? Logistics? It is super complicated. But I think, and you well know this, knowing who you work with, I do think if you talk about subscriptions, we're probably, this is the next age of subscriptions. It's working those problems out. And, you know, and it's not just physical goods. Healthcare is another super interesting area now in this space where it's trying to work out, you know, like, medicine, you can't digitize that per se. You're going to have to get people prescriptions and, and the drugs associated with them. So it's a super interesting space. And in some ways, it's moving full circle to that physical world. Now we've added this service layer. Now we're working out how they play together. Yeah, I agree. It's much more complicated. I mean, 20 years ago, I was working with Netflix and I thought that was complicated. But you know, that's a single business that was always direct to consumer, right? That is all digital compared to like what we're talking about, which is, you know, this is one of several lines of business at, at both companies that you're talking about, hardware and software, direct and indirect. And, you know, I have a question for you. Many organizations transform in multiple ways concurrently, right? Transaction to subscription, hardware to hardware and software, indirect to direct, physical to digital. What do you recommend? Like, do you have three different teams kind of working on these different transformations concurrently? Do you have one team that's responsible for massive change? Or do you do these sequentially and say, you know, 2023 is the year of direct to consumer and 2024 is the year of subscription and, and 2025 is, you know, whatever comes next. Whatever. Yeah. So I, I've certainly seen it done both ways. And I've been part of like mass change. You know, I think the automotive industry is maybe a good example of that, where there's mass change across the industry trying to rethink, is this, you know, the survival path for us above and beyond the kind of traditional, the traditional business. And I think you can take it on at once. If you've got a really clear vision, 
of where you want to be. And all those things I said at the start, you know, you believe the capabilities are there, the team is right, you've got the smarts. I think you can take it all on. But the issue is, I think you've got to be cognizant of is the more change you add into any system, the more thrash exists in that system, the more stress, the harder things are. You're running a marathon and you can only run so far at sprinter's pace, which essentially is what you're doing if you're taking it all on. So I think most realistically, you know, the ideal is you accept change is long, it's stressful, and it rarely goes to plan. You know, like things are going to come up that you just didn't foresee. So building a roadmap, as you described, or some kind of structure through which you can build things into chunks. And then, as we discussed earlier, maybe what does success look like for this chunk? Can we de-risk the bet here? Can we validate our hypothesis here? Can we do this thing and make it the best version we can? Because then we know we can get to this next piece and it'll be stronger as a result. So I think if you can compartmentalize, I think you'll last longer. But I've certainly seen the case and being part of organizations with very strong vision from either leadership or within the group of disruptors that have been charged with this, whereby I think you run up the hill, you run up it and you go at it. But yeah, as I said, at some point, you know, you, you tire, you run out of gas, you can't do that forever. Yeah. So you're saying either separate teams concurrent or separate teams sequential, but not one big messy nut to, yeah. to crack. I mean, it's hard. It depends on the size of the company, right? I think it's very difficult for a team, a singular team to be a master of all the different components they're going to need to be to be successful in gathering the change. So I think, yes, you're going to need multiple change, but you're going to have to need a system through which those teams communicate and collaborate with one another. And in turn, it comes back to, and this is why I'm banging this drum all day long, do that work up front. Talk to those teams and align on what it is you guys are trying to do collectively and what success might look like. Because if you don't do that, the more teams you add sequentially or all together, you know, all at one time, as soon as that first hand grenade kind of goes off or like the first, you know, you hit the first road bump, Without that North Star guiding you, I think it becomes very difficult to work out which way is up. Awesome. Wise advice. Okay. Do you have time for a speed round? I could talk to you all day, but yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Please go ahead. First subscription you ever had? You know, the one that always sticks out to me, funnily enough, is the Dollar Shave Club. I remember that's a little I left out of field, but I'm still going with that. Yeah. So there's hardware and subscription right there. Your favorite subscription today? Excluding your past companies. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'd probably say Apple One, given, you know, it combines so many things together. It's getting expensive, but, uh, you know, um, we use it every day. The coolest automotive subscription idea you've heard of? Oh, that's interesting. You know what? Kudos to the team at Ford. I still think one of the coolest ideas is, and Ford have won awards for this in Blue Cruise which is kind of hands-free, kind of eyes on the road driving. It just gives you so much time. I think if that starts us on the path to time as a precious commodity and giving time, productive, fun time back to customers while they're on the journey, I think that's really cool to me. Longer than a speed round there, but yeah. (laughs) How, if at all, your experience playing hockey has helped you be better at your work? You know, the quick decisions, it's humbling because, you know, some games you feel like you could, 
you know, progress onto the NHL and in others games, you wish you'd never got on the ice in the first place. But I think the quick decision making and honestly teamwork, like anyone who knows me will say I optimize for team and collaborativeness first and foremost. And I'm a huge believer in that. And I truly, I often said as, as a musician also, I was a band person, not a solo artist. Like I prefer to, you know, win and take things on as a team. So I think hockey is very similar to that, whereby it teaches you how to play your part with others. Fantastic. Ross McGregor, thank you so much for being a guest on Subscription Stories. No, thank you for having me. It's great. Thank you. That was Ross McGregor sharing best practices about service-first product leadership learned through his roles at Ford and PlayStation. For more about Ross, follow him on LinkedIn. And for more about subscription stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Ross, go to RobbieKelmanBaxter.com slash podcast. Also, I have a favor to ask. If you like what you heard, please take a minute to go over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention Ross and this episode if you especially enjoyed it. Reviews are how listeners find our podcast, and we appreciate each one. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories.